Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast, supported by University College at Washington University. Offering approachable world-class education with undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. As I hope you know by now, our We Live Here podcast team of Camille Stanley and Tim Lloyd is focusing this season on housing in St. Louis. As it happens, this is the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. The name itself is uh, self-explanatory, but the reality in some places, including St. Louis, does not necessarily live up to that billing. With me in studio to tell us more about the latest episode and give the subject historical perspective is Camille Stanley. Camille, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. The historical perspective really seems to be the key to this episode. Yeah, this episode is kind of a, um, a zoom way, 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 way out. Um, up until now, uh, our first few episodes of the season, we've, we've focused primarily on really um, taking a close and look at some individuals' personal stories and as it relates to housing and race in St. Louis. But this episode is a little different because it's um, it's kind of like a deep dive interview with one guy, and that guy happens to be author Richard Rothstein. Um, Who happens to know what he's talking about. He knows what he t- – he definitely knows what he's talking about. He's the author of a book um, – called Color of Law. Um, It is an excellent read, and we definitely um, hope that a lot of people out there, if they haven't already, pick it up and and put that on your reading list for this this year. One of the things he does and does very effectively is go through the the history of how we became as we have become and how other communities have done the same thing. Give us some sense of the kinds of things he was telling you, particularly with regard to the fact that the government played a pretty, pretty big role. Yeah, you know it's interesting because we were on a um, we were on a, a different radio show uh, a few weeks ago, Wait several a weeks you're, ago. You were doing other radio shows. <laughs> <laughs> yes, several weeks ago, and we were talking about this, and there was a guy who uh, reached out to us on Twitter and, and got kind of upset with the use of the term um, segregation because he said, "Well, that implies that you know there was some sort of institutional hand." And that's Rothstein's point in his book. There absolutely was an institutional hand, mm-hmm. and it was the government. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, it, you know, the last three or four decades, that kind of um, knowledge of these policies that were very explicit, totally based on race in terms of where people could and couldn't ha- um, couldn't live, um, those memories have just kind of been sort of papered over, whitewashed, and forgotten by a lot of people. So a lot of people walk around um, – upset or or concerned about segregation, but um, just kind of view it as something that just kind of fell out of the sky. Mm -hmm. And that's not true at all. What were some of those government policies? So uh, uh, things like the FHA, which subsidized uh, white families to be able to move and to um, uh, form suburbs like we see today. Um, those were the direct act, the direct uh, result of government action, where governments subsidize developers to be able to make all these big um, subdivisions and housing um, housing complexes and things like that. And and in those, in the subsidization of that, they explicitly had racial policies where they say you cannot, um, black people will not be able to live in these units, or uh, you cannot ever sell your house to. Um, uh, to black people. And so it was very explicit. I mean, the government was involved in um, tearing down neighborhoods that had been integrated and um, and then building separate 
segregated public housing um, units. Units, you know, we have that here in in St. Louis. Yeah, what uh, by expanding out to the suburbs, what the, this did was form a landing place for people involved in white flight. Totally, and yeah. and they made it advantageous. You know, there was uh, when they when they tried to do these programs and tried to um, get people nudge nudge white people out into the suburbs. Um, a lot of times people didn't want to go because it wasn't advantageous for them. But then they they gave them mortgages and they made it uh, cheaper for them to move and to um, go, you know, live in single family houses um, than to stay in the cities. So justifying that in some cases, I suspect from what, what Mr. Rothstein said is by building public housing units. That was that was another uh that was another way. So, you know, there was there were several um, phases to this. So, you know, you have the deliberate segregated public housing that was formed. You have the subsidization of, uh, of suburbs, which just accelerated and kind of nurtured um, white flight. And then you have all sorts of um, all sorts of other policies that were um, an enforcement that just ensured that um, that we would be segregated. One of the laws that caught my attention in your discussion with Mr. Rothstein was the fact that there were laws that would not allow people who were getting subsidized housing of some sort, Section 8 and that sort of thing, they wouldn't be allowed to, to live in certain places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually, um, there's actually a kind of a current, um, a current thread okay. where we see that here in St. Louis. And this, we've talked about this on the podcast before where, um, you know, Cities, a lot of cities had, um, you could legally discriminate against uh, something called source of income. And in the city of St. Louis, that's no longer true. So a landlord, can't, a private landlord can't say, I don't want to, um, I'm not discriminating based on race. I'm discriminating based on, I don't want to accept this form of payment for your rent. Um, and the city of St. Louis um, said, you can no longer do that. But the mm-hmm. county in St. Louis, you can you can do that. So a landlord can can say, I don't want to accept your voucher. Um, and since most voucher holders um, at this point are African-American, um, you can see how that continues policies that aren't are no longer, you know, written with explicit racial implications, but definitely have racial implications in the way that they are executed. Is there a lot of a lot of law out there in city or county uh, regulating landlords? Oh, and yeah, in every city in America, there's yeah. there's things you can and you can't do. Mm-hmm. Rosting points to the um, the source of income protection as a very narrow thing, a small thing, something that's actually doable um, that cities um, could do now, cities and regions could do now. He also has some other things that seem kind of lofty mm-hmm. in this kind of political environment on how to rectify and um, and combat segregation. What are some of those? For instance, you know, back when the um, back in the mid part of the last century, when uh, a lot of this subsidization of suburbs was going on, um, you know, white families were incentivized and were subsidized to buy homes in, say, a place called Levittown, and um, and then you know those homes would have been maybe a hundred thousand dollars. Well, over the decades, those homes appreciated, so now those homes are worth. Five hundred, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. So, for white families, this contributes directly to the uh, to the wealth gap that we have in this country between white people and people of color, in particular, black people, because white families were allowed to generate um, 
all this wealth and pass it down to their kids and things like that. So one of his ideas is the government could um, buy up houses at whatever the market rate is right now and sell those back to black people for whatever that original um, whatever the original cost would have been for them to make up the wealth gap that they have been um, that it's just continually perpetuated because of how property um, has been dealt in this country. As you said, a, a lofty idea, particularly lofty in this I, in this yeah, environment. I doubt that's ever going to. I doubt the government is going to say, "Hey, we're going to buy up these houses, these I don't know, ten houses for uh, five hundred thousand dollars, and we're going to sell it back to black people for a hundred thousand dollars, so they can." get the equity that they've lost. I wonder if there's any kind of a private opportunity to do something like that. Corporations, whatever, charities. I don't that's a great idea. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if anyone out there is, is thinking about well, that. <laughs> government's not going to do it, not in the foreseeable future. I think we can just stipulate that. Right, right. And we talk about this in the podcast. Um and another thing that we talk about in the in the podcast is uh before much of anything can be done. People have to get to the point where they where they know this history, um, and when they're not just walking around thinking like, "Oh my God, it's oh, it's it's sad that it's so segregated. I wonder how it got that way. It just happened by accident because it absolutely didn't happen by accident. So you're not going to change it by accident." Are there any many organizations out there that are working on this sort of thing? I mean, it's it's great to hear what you're doing, and you've got uh, you've got some volume, you've got a podium. But I wonder who else is out there that's concerned and doing something. Oh, there are there are tons of organizations that um, that I think are working to level the level the playing field a little bit more when it comes to affordable housing. Um, and in particular, there's a um, there's an organization there's organizations here in St. Louis where they're really trying to um, get voucher holders, people with Section Eight vouchers, into what are called like high opportunity um, high opportunity areas. Because one thing that we see, one thing that keeps us you know segregated, is um, even though they maybe have this thing that in theory they could live wherever they want, they're still blocked by a lot of a lot of barriers. And so there are organizations that help people try to break through those barriers and get into areas where um, they can, you know, have better opportunities. Yeah. We have a caller who wants to talk about this, and this is a good time to bring in Susie calling from Rock Hill. Susie, thanks for calling in. You're on the air. Hello? Hello, Susie. I'm here. Okay, go ahead, please. Quickly, we're starting to run out of time. Okay. I just wanted to say... When my husband and I moved here, we looked at a piece of property where the person had died, so the deed was available. And we were shocked to discover on the deed it said, you may not sell this to a Negro. Yeah. And this was mid-90s. This was not a long time ago. Yeah, a lot of – go ahead. Okay. Uh, uh, Yeah, a lot of those, um, you know, restricted deed covenants, and a lot of those are – exist here in, in our region. But this isn't, you know, St. Louis is not unique in this. These these exist in um, major metropolitan cities all over. I just read a story, uh, I think it was maybe out of Portland, a similar where people were discovering, they were looking at their deeds and discovering that they still had these very, very explicit, very racial, um, uh, racist um, 
clauses in their deeds. But I thought that was done away with, with Shelley versus Kramer, which was a St. Louis Supreme Court case, which eliminated restrictive covenants. It was done away with, but that doesn't mean that people went back and changed the deeds. <laughs> um, the grandfathered in, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, one thing about Shelley versus Kramer, which we've seen in our in our own area, the um, the neighborhood where Shelley versus Kramer, um, the neighborhood where the house was, uh, looks quite, quite different because, you know, the forces of, although you can have this victory, um, this legal victory, and so black people were able to legally um, live where they wanted to live and restricted deeds were, um, restricted covenants were struck down, um, that still didn't stop, you know, the, the very powerful forces of white flight that was subsidized by federal housing policies. As I mentioned in the intro, this is the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. Uh, that doesn't seem to be working very well, given what you've been saying for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> I, you know, I think that you know, whenever you have one of these big anniversaries, it's kind of like um, it's a good time to assess where, uh, where things were, but, but be kind of frank and honest about where things are. And you know, I think people will hear this if they haven't already caught up on, on this season that um, – there is still quite a bit of work to do, and we're kind of delving into all different aspects of that this year. I have a uh, an email here. It's kind of long, and I haven't read it all yet, but let's see what David in Webster Groves wants to say. Can you speak to the 1950s law that white residents could use their public housing dollars for equity when their black neighbors who lived right next door were only allowed to use their public housing dollars for rent? White former residents of public housing have rolled that equity into five, six times more net worth today than their black neighbors who lived right next door at the time. In the 1960s, these two families were equally poor. Today, these policies still matter. That's exactly what um, Rothstein gets in. Um, Rothstein gets into in the podcast and in his book, um, Color of Law. And you are exactly right. There are um, things that were done decades ago that ripple out into today, and why? Why not only we live the way we live today, which is largely separate, but why conditions are so different for? Um, white and black families. And, and I think the he's told us this, you know, like kind of the goal of his book is to kind of uh, roll back this kind of collective amnesia we have over how we got to be where we are. Mm-hmm. Only have about a minute left. Are any other lofty ideas you can share with us, Mr. Rothstein? You know, this this shouldn't be lofty, but one of the things he says is, you know, teaching this history uh, to kids. And, you know, he did like kind of a survey of all like the history books of like middle and high school students. And, you know, there's very little in the history book or it's it's very rosy. It's like and then the and then in the 50s, you know, the, the, the FHA allowed people to get homes left out of that as black people. They were not able to um, to join in on these great subsidies that have a lot to do with the income gap, the wealth gap and segregated housing that we see today. Leaving black history out of the history books is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right. I want to thank you so much, Camille. Uh, recommend the podcast. As we'd like to say, these podcasts can be found anywhere you get your podcast. Anywhere correct? Your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> nice job, as usual. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Dan. Support for We Live Here comes from the Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise at Lindenwood University. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. 
Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.